Game brought to you by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. We are here yet again for the continuation of the town hall meeting. I have ended the music, and that means that the streaming has now begun on Twitch. You can find me on Tox Streaming, T-O-X Streaming on Twitch. Poor Dumb Rebel is the archives on YouTube, and you can find us on every podcast platform. Again, at Twitter, on Twitter, it's on Twitter, at AzaWave, A-Z-A-W-A-V is where you can find me if you want to get in direct contact. I don't have an email for any of this shit. I am just a floating talking head trying to find news to suck the blood out of and spit out pure toxicity. Anyways, um, we are continuing on with the town hall debates um, well after they've happened, just to get a little bit of perspective without all the bullshit in the way. And guess what? We did Trump. Uh, now it's time to get in with the Biden. I got my water. If you don't have any water with you, please drink some. Water's really good for you. I got like a giant jug here. Oh, yeah. I'm going to try and not eat any of the ice. That's like a problem that I have when I record most of the time. But let's get it. Do I have to fast forward? Good evening from the National Constitution Center. Oh, and I'm probably going to do the same thing as bump the uh, speed up. So it might sound a little bit weird for those not used to this speed, but it allows us to get through it a bit quicker, especially since Joe Biden's a bit of a slower talker. So let's go. Center in Philadelphia, our town hall with Joe Biden starts right now. This is an ABC News 2020 oh. with an dominating moment and special I mean, edition of 2020 of Vice right President and the People. Now reporting, Chief Anchor George Stephanopoulos. And welcome to our town hall with Joe Biden. Mr. Vice President, welcome to you. Good to be with you. We're here with a group of Pennsylvania voters. You can see they're all appropriately socially distanced <laughs> tonight. And they're yeah. a group of, some are voting for you. Some have said they're voting for President Trump. Some are still undecided. And we're going to try to take questions from as many of them as we can okay. tonight. And we're going to start with Nicholas Fedden. He's from Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. That's close to here, here in Philadelphia. No, and well. You're a Democrat. I am a Democrat. Thank you, George. Mr. Vice President, uh, every day, my wife and I are in disbelief at the lack of coordinated federal action on COVID-19. We know that your administration would follow the science. My question for you is two parts. First, looking backwards to when this country first became aware of COVID-19, what would following the science have meant in terms of actual policy? And then looking forward, what would your administration do in terms of following the science with real concrete policies that haven't been done by the current administration. The really thing that's hard about this question right here is that we're dealing in a hypothetical land. What I like about asking Trump about these questions is you can actually directly look at what he did as an issue. I'm trying to remember back to the Obama-Biden era time of when they dealt with H1N1 is really hard because different virus and also just the fog of time collapsing that memory. Um, but it's just so hard to take Joe Biden's word on this when we're dealing in a hypothetical realm, especially when he has hindsight of Trump's, um, you know, shitty job to just say, well, I would do everything that Trump didn't do. Well, first of all, going back, uh, the fact is that we, the president was informed how dangerous this virus was. And uh, all the way back in the beginning of February, I argued that we should be keeping people in China. 
And we had set up in our administration a pandemic office within the White House. There were 44 people on the ground. I suggested we should be seeking, and I didn't hold public office. I was a former vice president. I suggested we, in fact, ask to have access to the, the source of the problem. And the best of our knowledge, Trump never pushed that. All those 44 people came home, never got replaced. And, addition and I, I, I brought that up. Um, in the last one is that even though Trump had the travel ban marked on China, he brought them back and they were not uh, social distanced or put into quarantine for two weeks. They were allowed to just go home and spread the virus. In that, I pointed out that I thought in February, I did a piece for USA Today saying this is a serious problem. Trump denied it. He said it wasn't. We later learned that he knew full well how serious it was when he did an interview with George Woodward. I mean, excuse me, Bob Woodward. And at the time, uh, he said he didn't tell anybody because he was afraid Americans would panic. Americans don't panic. He panicked. He didn't say a word to anybody. Then I wrote a piece in March about what I thought we should be doing to take hold of this using the, the there, there's an act that passed a long time ago that allows the president to go into a business and say, stop making this and start making that and it took a long time for him to even institute that to get ventilators and so on and so the point was he missed enormous opportunities and kept saying things that weren't true it's going to go away by easter don't worry about it it's going to all when the heat when the, when the summer comes it's all going to go away like a miracle he's still saying those things mr before you go to the future can i follow up on the on looking backwards just a little bit you did have an op-ed in january where you warmed to the seriousness of the pandemic but there's no record of you calling for social distancing limited social gatherings mandatory masks. not back then in January, February. No, in right. January, February. No, that's correct. There wasn't. That came at the end of March, and then I laid out a detailed plan relative to school open. Yeah, but does uh, Biden have like the same kind of like, um, what are they called? The, the same kind of counsel around him that the president does. So, you know, calling Joe Biden out for not advocating for these certain things at the same time that the president wasn't doing it, it's just like, well, he didn't have direct contact with Anthony Fauci or even like the uh, scientists of China, because who knows like how much Wuhan scientists were actually communicating with American uh, diplomats to tell us the exact information or nature of this virus. Openings in, in June and July, and I uh, talked about, we got, by that time, the science was becoming clearer and clearer of how this was spreading so rapidly. But the president kept denying that. If you notice, from March on, I stopped doing big meetings. I started wearing masks. We, you know, so it was at a time when the science was saying, and his key people, Dr. Fauci, were saying, you should be taking these precautions. So what we should be doing now, there should be a national standard, instead of leaving this up. And remember what the president said to the governors. Well, they're on their own. That's not my responsibility. The governors can do what they need to do, not my responsibility. It is a presidential responsibility to lead. And he didn't do that. He didn't talk about what needed to be done because he kept worrying, in my view, about the stock market. He worried if he talked about how bad this could be unless we took these precautionary actions, then in fact the market would go down. And his barometer of success in the economy is the market. Thirdly, what we didn't do is the president uh, had an opportunity to open and allow schools and businesses to stay open if he, they got the kind of help they needed. So the Congress passed a couple trillion dollars worth of help, and what happened was most of that money, a significant portion of that money, went to the very wealthiest corporations in the country, didn't get to the mom and pop stores. So you had one in five, one in six uh, minority businesses closing, many of them permanently, people being laid off. And then what happened was when the first tranche of uh, the first round of money for unemployment, enhanced unemployment, passed, went, went, uh, went by, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. And to the best of my knowledge, and I mean this sincerely, I can't think I've been around for a lot of presidents, and you know a lot of presidents. 
presidents in a crisis. I don't ever remember one never calling the House and Senate Republicans and Democrats together. Let's let's look forward a little bit. You said that you would lock down the economy only if the scientists said it was necessary. Well, by the way, that wasn't the context. They said, would I lock down the, 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 the economy if science said so? I said, I'd follow science. Would I, but I don't think there's a need to lock well, down. But I want to press you on that point. Sure. You, you, you've been in the Oval Office for eight years with President Obama. He would always say that only the, only the hard to solve problems yeah, get to his get ass. What is most likely to happen is the scientists will disagree. The scientists will disagree with the economists. So the question is, how are you going to decide this? Who are you going to listen to? And how can you can contain the pandemic without crushing the economy? Well, you can contain the pandemic by being rational and not trust the economy. For example, I laid out a plan how you can open businesses. You can open businesses and schools if, in fact, you provide them the guidance that they need as well as the money to be able to do it. What's happening now is we know, for example, if you can open a business and you could have a sign on the door saying safe to come in, that's why people aren't going anyway when they, even when they're open, and say because you have social distancing, you have plastic barriers, when you go to the cashier, you have separators between the booths, you don't have large crowds, you reduce the size, the number of people you can have in the restaurant, you make sure there's testing, that's a really critical piece that he didn't do, testing and tracing, and you make sure that people are equipped going to schools. You know, we initially said, the government initially said they're gonna provide masks for every student and every teacher. Then they said, no, 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 no. FEMA said, that, that, the, the president or whomever said, no, no, that's not a national emergency. Not a national emergency. We need fewer, we need more teachers in our schools to be able to open smaller pods. We need ventilation systems changed. Well, there's a lot of things we know now. And I've la I laid them out in some detail. Now again, when I say I laid them out, I'm not an office holder. I'm running for office. It's not like I'm still vice president or I was a, a United States senator pushing this. So I don't want to say I, I, I. But we did lay out exactly what needed to be done. And take a look. We make up 4% of the world's population. We have 20% of the world's deaths. We're in a situation where we have 210 plus thousand people dead. And what's he doing? Nothing. He's still not wearing masks and so on. We're getting some other questions on COVID. Sure. The next one comes from Kelly Lee. She's from Philadelphia. Thank you. Repo I think the unfortunate thing is, is that Biden does have the, yeah, the opportunity to say that I would have done more than Trump did because Trump did the bare minimum, if anything at all. Um, and that's why, like, you know, he says, well, two million could, people could have died. Um, they, they said two million people were going to die. And it's like, well, yeah, if you did absolutely nothing. Uh, and uh, that's that's exactly what uh, Joe Biden is still accusing the president of doing, is that he still didn't do as much as he possibly could have in that situation to try and alleviate the um, at least impact of the virus, which you can make that case for because in these other um, Democratic Western nations, they were able to keep their death rates at a very low, low amount, um, alongside the amount of their cases. Republican uh, voted for Donald Trump in 2006. Actually, let me see something real quick. Let's just see. Find a comparison here. the UK would be a good one but they also have different city structures and a lot of other variations that would oh my god see their cases in Norway never reached like above uh, they have total cases of 16,000 very sm much smaller country very small much smaller but obviously like not even near uh, the same kind of devastation the United Kingdom looks like to be suffering most of it let's try and get uh, France in there 
16,000 cases there. France has 897,000. Starting to see a more higher increase now in the winter months. America is looking at 8 million. Germany has 365. So I wonder if we can just do Europe total cases worldwide. That's hard because it would be tight to get like the EU together because I feel like that's closer to the American population. Um, so yeah, there's 200,587 deaths in the EU, EEA, and UK. Um, and together, their combined is 4 million. 799,000. So, I mean, you have to really take that into account because these are significantly smaller nations compared to the United States. And they're not quite as consistent. Like, UK looks more like we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. Interesting. Still not quite as where we're at, but uh, not doing well. And then I wonder if we took Canada's into consideration on the side of ours. I don't think I've ever checked how Canada's doing. Canada has 198,000 cases. Interesting. Their states are a little bit divided differently than ours. <laughs> Their borders actually, to me, make a little bit more sense. Still not quite uh, that sensical, but a bit more. And then also, I feel like they have a lot more rural than we do. Look at all of our clusters compared to theirs, though. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of factors, and it's just like I think Joe Biden does have a point of saying, well, I wouldn't have handled it exactly how Trump handled it. Um, and I would have done slightly better, but we, we're, we're just speculating here, and it's uh, a little not fair. It's not, it's not fair that much. If we do remember during H1N1, masks were never really a mandated thing, um, but we did see 60 million between April of, I think, 2008 and April of 2009, we saw 60 million infections, so it was a much more infectious disease. 16, undecided Again. now. Hey, Kelly, how are you? Hi, Mr. Biden. My question is about the coronavirus vaccine yes. or potential. Uh, Senator Harris stated that she absolutely would not take a vaccine from President Trump. And of course, we all know it's not President Trump that would create this vaccine. It would be doctors and scientists that presumably we all trust. So my question for you is, if a vaccine were approved by between now and the end of the year, would you take it? And if you were to become president, would you mandate that everyone has to take it? Two things. Number one, President Trump talks about things that just aren't accurate about everything from vaccines. We're going to have one right away. It's going to happen and so on. The point is that if the scientists, if the body of scientists say that this is what is ready to be done and it's been tested, they've gone through the three phases, yes, I would take it. I'd encourage people to take it. But President Trump says things like, you know, everything from this crazy stuff he's walking away from now, inject bleach in your arm and that's going to work. I'm not being a bit, I'm not being facetious. I mean, he's actually said these things. And now Regeneron is the answer. That's going to cure everything. There's 500,000 doses. 
here. NBC a couple, you know, we special have more than a few million people. Um, you know, and so, and most of the, if you notice, most of the companies who are developing these vaccines are, are working, they're making real progress. I meet with four leading scientists at least twice a week in the beginning, four times a week, giving us the detail on what kind of progress is being made. And right now, they do the right thing. When they run into a serious problem, they halt the test. They don't continue until they figure out what the problem was. They're not there yet. And the most scientists say it's not likely to have a vaccine that would be available until the beginning of next year, into the into the spring of next year. And in the and then just recently, the WHO said that uh, we're you know young people may not be able to take the vaccine until 2022. Um, let's see, World Health Organization. Uh, healthy young people may wait for coronavirus vaccine until 2022. I don't want to read any of those from... Is there someone else that I can find here that isn't a news, U.S. news outsource or source here? Because it would be fucking great to get somebody a little bit... A little bit outside of our fucking uh, polit like our election year right now to talk about this. All right, here we go. comes from Aora. Uh, and it's blocking. Cool. Uh, many people are under the misconception that they'll be able to get a vaccine in early 2021 and the things will be back to normal, but it will not be like that. Nobody has ever produced vaccines in the necessary volume. So in reality, any vaccine that is ready next year will be available in limited quantities. So I think what they're saying about young people is that they're amazingly going to have to wait just because... Um, we'll have to focus on who should get the vaccine sooner. She also stressed that healthcare workers and others on the front lines will be the first vaccinated, followed by the elderly and so on. So yeah, younger people uh, who you know can usually suffer from milder cases and don't need as much medical treatment will have to just continue on, stay strong and wear a fucking mask. Sorry. Meantime, what I worry about is the same thing with Regeneron, which is which is a useful antidote, not antidote, a useful uh, tool. But what's happening is there is no plan to figure out how to distribute it. How many, you know, we have 500,000, you know, uh, um, vials of it. Well, we don't have all the testing equipment. We don't have all the ability to get it to the people who need it. And what we should be doing now, and allegedly it's happening, but I've not seen it yet, nor the docs that I've talked to have seen it. There should be a plan when we have the vaccine, how do we distribute it? And once we get it, if it's safe, it's, if it's effective, will you mandate its use? The answer is depending on how clear there's vaccines, they say, have a very positive impact and they're going to affect positively 85% of the American public. Or there's others say this vaccine is really the key. This is, this, is, this is the golden key. It depends on the state of the nature of the vaccine, when it comes out, and how it's being distributed. That would depend on. But I would think that we should be talking about, depending on the continuation of the spread of the virus, we should be thinking about making it mandatory. How could you enforce that? Well, you couldn't. That's the problem. Just like you can't afford, you can't enforce measles. You can't, you can't come to school unless you have a measles shot. You know, you can't. But you can't say everyone has to do this. But you would, just like you can't mandate a mask. But you can say, you can go to every governor and get them all in a room, all 50 of them as president, and say, ask people to wear the mask. Everybody knows. And if they don't, fine. And they don't, no, not fine. Then I go to every governor, I go to every mayor, I go to every councilman, I go to every local official, say, mandate the mask. Man, say, this is what you have to do when you're... See, Joe's not specifically like, he kind of, 
has the same air of a politician that thinks the American people are dumb. It's like, well, we'll have to mandate it if people aren't doing it and then have to have legal consequences in that. And yes, some people will find it as tyranny, but unfortunately, if people aren't willing to respect the public health of others, then we have to enforce consequences for that irresponsibility by others. You're out. Make sure you encourage it being done. Look, George, you and I know, and I think you do too as well, the words of a president matter. Absolutely. No matter whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, they matter. And when a president doesn't wear a mask or makes fun of folks like me when I was wearing a mask for a long time, then, you know, people say, well, it mustn't be that important. But when a president says, I think this is very important, for example, I walked in here with this mask, but I have one of the M95 masks underneath it. I left it in, in, the, uh, in, in my dressing room, the dressing room, the, the, the room I was in before I got here. Um, and so I think it matters what we say. And we're now learning that children are getting the virus, not with as, con as serious consequences, but we haven't, there's been no studies done yet on vaccines for children. So there's a long way to go, but we can make progress in the meantime and save lives. And last point. I like, I, you know, I like that because Trump does make those like um, pie in the sky um, promises where Biden's at least willing to be pragmatic here or at least realistic that we have a long way to go. Um, I think an actual leader and a leader by example would say like this is going to be the hardest battle that we've ever faced in America since the Great Depression or since the, uh, the Spanish flu. But we've we've conquered it before and we will conquer it again. But we have to do what is necessary in order to do so. And I think he is like toting that line almost right there. But unfortunately, he is just not as sharp as he used to be. I have to admit that because he has things that he has to say, but he just can't quite say them perfectly enough. God damn it, I wish we had Bernie. No, mate. If you, if you listen to the head of the... Bernie's old, but the thing is, though, is I feel like he was actually, like, really forefront and aware and conscious of all of these issues and exactly how to go about them. He spoke the people's language as much as Trump did as well. ...of the CDC. He stood up and he said, you know, while we're waiting for a vaccine, and he held up a mask, you wear this mask, you'll save more lives between now and the end of the year than if we had a vaccine. And if we had a vaccine, it's estimated by every major study done from the University of Washington to Columbia that if, in fact, we wore masks, we could save between now and the end of the year 100,000 lives. And avoid lockdowns? And, and avoid lockdown, yes. You don't have to lock down if you're wearing the mask. Let's get a question on the economy. Anthony Argerakis. Thank you. I hope I answered your question. From Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. It's a suburb of Pittsburgh. Repu I mean, you still can't have, like, large gatherings and stuff like that, and you should have contact tracing and free testing, and it's more than just wearing a mask, but, um, you know, we wouldn't have to do it if people were willing to um, be more conscientious of their behavior when they go out in public for the amount of time that it takes. Republican, I know it. for President Trump. Thank you, George. Thank you, uh, Mr. Vice President. You stated that anyone making less than $400,000 will not see one single penny of their taxes raised. That's right. You also state that you are going to eliminate the Trump tax cuts. The Trump tax cuts reduces taxes for the majority of workers. I would argue not enough. What is your plan for either extending the tax cuts for the middle class or creating a new plan that further reduces those taxes? I carry this card with me. When I said the, tax, the Trump tax cuts, about $1.3 trillion, of the $2 trillion in his tax cuts went to the top one-tenth of 1%. That's what I'm talking about eliminating, not all the tax cuts that are out there. And by the way, if you just take a look, we reduced the corporate tax rate from 35%, and Democrats and Republicans who were in office thought it should come down to 28%. He reduced it to 21%. You have 91 out of every of the Fortune 500 companies not paying a single solitary penny. If you raise the corporate tax just back to 28%, which is a fair tax, you'd raise $1,300,000,000 by that one act. 
if you made sure the people making over 400 grand paid what they did in the Bush administration, 39.6%, you would raise another, it goes up to, uh, let me get the exact number here, about another 200, excuse me, uh, $92 billion. So you can raise a lot of money to be able to invest in things that can make your life easier. Make you. That's the hard thing that we're kind of having a sell on here, though, in, in, in America, especially along the lines of the Republican Party and the Libertarian Party, is that they don't really want to pay more taxes because they don't believe that the government has the competence to spend the money and manage the money in the way that it needs to be done. So that's kind of the issue here when he speaks of this. Now, we what we... And the thing that I want to see not being a libertarian or a Republican is that we actually have people properly managing the money to go towards things that people actually need. Change your standard of living by making sure you have affordable health care, by making sure you're in a situation where you're able to send your kid to school. And if you have a student debt, you can deal with it. Making sure that you're, you're home, you can pay your mortgage. You've got 20 million people right now. Mr. President, let me press you on that, though. Sure. You're going to raise the corporate tax. You're going to raise taxes on the wealthy. Is it wise to do even that when the economy is as weak as it is right now? Another 900,000 people. That's, that's, that's a great question. Moody's did analysis of my detailed analysis of my tax plan and my economic plan. They said, I will in four years, Moody's, Wall Street, said I will create 18.6 million new jobs, good paying jobs, number one. Number two, and I'll increase, the GDP will grow by a trillion dollars more than would under Trump and seven million more jobs than under Trump. And the reason is when you allow people to get back in the game and have a job, everything moves. Everything moves. Right now, you got the opposite. You had last year, during this pandemic, you had the wealthiest billionaires in the world, in the, in the nation. They made another $700 billion. $700 billion. He talks about a V-shaped recovery. It's a K-shaped recovery. If you're on the top, you're going to do very well. And the other thing, I'm, and if you're in the bottom, or you're in the middle of the bottom, your income is coming down. He didn't explain that very well, but he's at least acknowledging that these things are the factors, is that we're seeing a K-shaped economy. He's not doing a very good job at explaining it, but there are certain industries, and they're the ones of the billionaires who made $700 billion, who did get this trajectory upwards, and then that K, that sees their continual increase. And then for other industries and for other workers, you're getting that other side of the K that goes down. That's the K-shaped economy that we're seeing right now. We hit a wall, stagnation, and then we're seeing an increase for some and a decrease for others. And we can obviously see, because the reports have come through, who benefits the most from it. And so far, it has been the tech industry and then certain industries that provide for necessities. You're not getting a raise. I, 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 should, I don't know what you do. You may get a raise. Hope you're a billionaire. I, but, 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 but all kidding aside, but it's about growing the economy. And George, the way out, the reason why I'm so optimistic about economic recovery, more than I've ever been, is we have these four crises happening all at once, and one helps the other. For example, we're going to invest a great deal of that money into infrastructure and into a green infrastructure. We're going to put 500,000 charging stations on new highways we're building and old highways we're building. We're going to own the electric market. You know as well as I do from your... I, you know, and see, like, I want to get excited about 500 charging stations, but, like, it's 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 so little, and I hate that, like, the, the, the moderate Democrats are so against the Green New Deal because, honestly, uh, paying for the Green New Deal now will be expensive 
True, but it will not be as expensive as the cost that we're going to have to pay to actually fight against the climate that it will be trying to kill us. Forcing refugees and many people to move from where they live. We're already starting to see that happen. There was evacuations in California during their fires. There was evacuations in Oregon during their fires. That's property damage created by climate change that is going to cost money to either repair or replace with different buildings. Who knows what they're actually going to do with all that burnt wildlife. And then... There was even just recently uh, evacuations in Colorado. So um, we're seeing this happening right now. Um, the cost building up of repairing the country rather than preparing the country. Days, you know, in the old days, where the president has spends about $600 billion a year on government contract. I think I have to blow my nose real quick. Oh, man. This, it's like this one booger just bothered them. Hell yeah, I fucking wrecked that booger. Ugh. Look out, Mnuchin. There's a new eviction king out here. He's removing boogers. All right, let's get back to it. Everything from making sure they have aircraft carriers to, to automobile fleets for the, uh, in the United States. If you make, make, and we can, and it's not violation of any international trade agreement, made in America. If you actually insist that, whatever that product is, made in America, including the material that goes into the product, we, it's estimated we're going to create somewhere between another four and six million jobs just by doing that. But what's happening now? Under his trade policy, a lot of this is going overseas. You get a benefit from going overseas if you have much of it being made overseas. Trump says that his policy is the opposite, but here's the thing is that like most of this is also neoliberalist policies because it is cheaper to uh, produce most of the manufacturing outside of the United States, especially since we actually get most of the materials also um, outside of the United States. The United States is no longer a production state um, unless it comes with like information, data and military. Um, all this manufacturing that has anything to do with like um, luxuries or commodities, not happening. Not happening. So if you send it overseas, you get a 10% tax increase on, your, on, on the product. If you make it in America and you bring it back, you get a 10% growth. If you bring back a company and you're going to open up an old, an old facility, you get a 10% tax credit for all you invested. That actually works, George. So there's not going to be any delay on the tax increases? No, well, I've got to get the votes. I've got to get the votes. That's why, you know, uh, the one thing, and I, I have this strange notion. We are a democracy. Some of my Republican friends and some of my Democratic friends even occasionally say, well, if you can't get the votes by executive order, you're going to do something. Things you can't do by executive order unless you're a dictator. We're a democracy. We need consensus. Got to take a quick break. We'll be sure. right back. I hope I answered your question. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. <laughs> this special edition of 2020 will return in a moment. <laughs>
<laughs> Welcome to Disney. Oh my god, I can't, I love how they added the preamble in there. Like how constitutional Joe Biden is and Trump like they didn't add any of that. But the thing is though is that like tr uh, Biden is much more cordial than Trump is. And um, you know, I know that's not an appeal for all Republicans, more of the moderate decent Republicans, but um, that's just another conversation. Um, but it, yeah, so far, um, Biden's not doing a terrible job. It's just for the most part, he still doesn't necessarily represent the ideals that I would like to see in office. And um, I'm sure a lot of other independents aren't really feeling. But for the most part, it is a return to a level of uh, politics that we just don't see anymore. So I, I got to give him credit on that. Um, but for the most part, too, we're still... Um, doing moderate policies in a in what we would consider radical times to be perfectly honest with you so i just i just want that to be considered um these are very radical times right now especially with trump as president because he's one of the most radical republicans to be in there since dick cheney we can say george bush was bad but have you ever heard of dick cheney um i gotta fast forward through all of this all right now we're gonna get the 15th amendment I'm in it. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. From the and that's why we take into like a lot of these court cases of like gerrymandering and such and such about like whether or not they're breaking the 15th Amendment. Um, and like it would be interesting to see if Trump tries to evoke that during you know the election or if they try to evoke it against Trump because Trump also advised that we have poll watchers um, his own people be poll watchers so that's very interesting the Constitution Center in Philadelphia Cedric Humphrey he's a student from Harrisburg Pennsylvania progressive Democrat don't jump Cedric you look like you're way up there <laughs> okay. thank you George and good evening former Vice President Biden many people believe that the true swing demographic in this election will be black voters under the age of 30 not because they'll be voting for Trump but because they won't vote at all I myself have had this exact same conflict so my question for you then is besides you ain't black what do you have to say to young black voters who see voting for you as further participation in a system that continually fails to protect them? Well, I say, first of all, as my buddy John Lewis said, it's a sacred opportunity to right to vote. You can make a difference. If young black women and men vote, you can determine the outcome of this election. Not a joke. You can do that. And the next question is, am I worthy of your vote? Can I earn your vote? And the answer is, there's two things I think that I care, and I've demonstrated I care about my whole career. One is, in addition to dealing with a criminal justice system to make it fair and make it more decent, we have to be able to put black Americans in a position to be able to gain wealth, generate wealth. And so you look at what they, that entails. It entails everything from early education. That's why I'm supporting making sure that we entitle one schools, as you know, schools with the least tax base to be able to support their schools. I increase the funding for them from 15 to, to, uh, to uh, $45 billion. That allows every teacher in that school to make up to 60000 bucks. And the problem now is they're leaving the schools. They're not there. We're short about a million and a half teachers, a million and a quarter teachers. Number two, every three and four and five-year-old will go to school, school, not daycare, school. And with all the great universities, including the one you've gone to, go to or went to, in fact, talks about in the last eight years, what's happened. What happens when you let them go to school, they make up rapidly the whatever, the, whatever, um, fail, whatever, 
shortcoming they had in terms of their education prior to that. They have not heard as many words spoken, et cetera, et cetera. What happens is that the studies show that 58% will increase by 58% their chance of going all through uh, 12 years of school and going through successfully. We'll also provide for the ability to bring in social workers and, and school psychologists. We have one school psychologist in America now for every 1,507 kids. It should be one to 500, not just in, 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 in schools that are poor, but in all schools. Because we learned that, for example, drug abuse doesn't cause mental illness. Mental illness causes drug abuse, the failure to get hold of people and, and deal with their anxieties. In addition to that, I, I provide for $70 billion for HBCUs for them to be able to have the wherewithal to do what other universities can do because they, ha they don't have the kind of foundational support they need. And so that would allow them, for example, like we did in our administration, the president allowed me to go down and we awarded a, a, a cybersecurity laboratory ability to compete for a cybersecurity laboratory. The federal government spends billions of dollars a year on universities because they're the best kept secret of where most of the major inventions come out of. And so that school now will be able to produce young black women and men who are going to go into a field of the future that's burgeoning, cybersecurity. And that's what that's what's going to help a great deal. In addition to that, if you're a young man about to graduate or you graduated from school and you want to own your first home or your well it's awful hard to get the money depending on the background or what your, your excuse me your economic background is to get a down payment so we're going to guarantee first-term home buyers a $15,000 down payment for first-term home buyers in addition to that what all the studies now show and I've been arguing this for a long time is young black entrepreneurs are just as successful as white entrepreneurs or anyone else given a shot but you can't get the money where do you go to get the startup money so what President Obama and I did, we had a program, we took a billion five hundred million dollars and we invested it in all the SBAs around the country, in the state SBAs, small business associations, and that generated $30 billion came off the sideline because if you have a guarantee of $200,000 for your new startup enterprise, young entrepreneur, you're going to be able to attract, if it's government money as a guarantee, you'll be able to attract another $100,000. It, it generated $30 billion. Well, I'm changing that program, and I'll get this done without much trouble, I believe, in the Congress, from, uh, from uh, $1.5 billion to $30 billion. To 30 billion. That'll take 300 billion dollars off the sideline and grow because you know. And for example, if you, in fact, uh, and I were the same age and we split our differences, and we were the same. I just want to say that like his math is so bad. It's so bad. He's he his brain is just fumbling on the math. It's so bad. Same age, and we went to the same builder to buy us each the same home. But my home was in a white neighborhood on one side of a highway, and yours is in a black neighborhood. Same exact home. Your home will start off being valued 29% less than my home. Yet your insurance for that home will be higher. You'll be taxed more for it. We've got to end this. That's what got me involved in politics in the first place, thing called redlining. We can change so much that we can do so much. He acknowledged it exists. That's, that's some points. That's some points there. Much to change the circumstances to give people a real opportunity. Cedric, but, did you hear what you needed? Oh, I'm sorry. I just said, do you hear what you needed here? Uh, I think so. Okay. Well, there's a lot more if you want to, if you're going to hang around afterwards, I'll tell you more. Okay. Let's I mean, yeah, he's basically saying that through government assistance that we, we can find you a lot of ways to help you. But at the same time, too, um, that's the sort of thing that Candace Owens has been kind of campaigning against is that she believes that the Democratic Party uh, um, puts like these welfare programs, as they call it, to um, put black people dependent on the government to help them succeed which you know perpetuates the system of black people being victims and I, I i respect joe biden's answers because his answer was basically by saying um better funded government programs can help uplift um the black community i'm just not sure every answer specifically had to deal with the black community 
but you know it all does have to start with that analogy of how the race was with white supremacy giving a head start to all the white people in america and black people really needing to be brought to a certain point in the race to be able to not compete but actually just have the same kind of opportunities but you know for the most part too he should have said well first off i need to bring back critical race theory and you know, the 1886 project or the 18, 1819 project? What the fuck was it called? <laughs> Shit. I, see? And this is like, my school didn't teach it, so it's not like I fucking... I think it was an 1819 project, right? Yeah, 1819 project. 1619 project, I apologize. 1819, God. <laughs> Uh, bring back the 16 which is you know that one it's had its own controversy but basically bringing back critical race theory and then also maybe even talking about having um, better opportunities in um, uh, predominantly black neighborhoods because we still even though we don't have specific discrimination laws that keep people in certain areas we have um, other uh, systemic issues that keep people in low income low opportunity areas that tend to push them towards joining um, or doing illegal activity to make more money than they ever would by playing the game straight. That's something that happens in not just black neighborhoods, but poor neighborhoods or even poor countries. No, but I really mean it. It's the key. Look, this is the way every other, how do most, like my dad, he lost his job up in Scranton. And it took him three years to be able to move down to Delaware to Claymont, Delaware, a little steel town, and sent us home to our grandpa to live with him. We finally got back. We lived in apartments, became six and eight housing much later. It wasn't, it was just normal apartments. And, but it took him five years to be able to buy a home. Well, we bought a three-bedroom home with four kids and a grandpa living with us, but it accumulated wealth. You build up wealth. That's how middle-class folks make it. They build up wealth. Then he was able to borrow a little against that to be able to help us get to school, those kinds of things. It's about accumulating wealth. And it's... It's not about accumulating wealth. It's, um, I mean, property kind of and assets kind of equal wealth, but it's mainly about having the opportunities and the things like the necessities in order for you to chase after opportunities that can then uplift your economic status, at least in a capitalist terms. But for the most part, people are having a hard time even meeting their necessities with the opportunities that are afforded to them. So I'm not sure if he's able to actually directly answer how he would make it a better situation. Very, you're behind an eight ball. The vast majority of people of color are behind an eight ball. And it's the same way what's going on now with all this money that's been voted. What's happened? You go to the bank if you're a black businessman, and, I, and the president fired the only inspector general to see over, oversee all this help coming from the Congress. And what happens? You go in and they say, uh, do you have an account here? No. Do you have a, do you have a credit card with this? No. Have you borrowed from us before? No. We bail these suckers out. They're not liable for any of the money, but they still won't rent it. They still won't lend it to you. We got to change that. It's about accumulating wealth. Want to get another question in here from Angelica Polisaris? No, not at all. Garnet Valley, Pennsylvania, Hi. Republican who voted for President Trump last time. Thank you, thank you, George. Thank you, Vice President Biden. Nice to meet you. Um, what's your view on the crime bill that you wrote in 1994, which showed prejudice against minorities? Where do you stand today on that? Well, first of all, things have changed drastically. That crime bill went and voted. The Black Caucus voted for it. Every black mayor supported it across the board. And it didn't. The crime bill itself did not have mandatory sentences except for two things. What it had uh, three strikes in your 
out, which I voted against in the crime bill, but it had a lot of other things in it that turned out to be both bad and good. I wrote the Violence Against Women Act, that was part of it, the assault weapons ban and other things that were good. What I, what I was against was giving states more money for prison systems that they could build, state prison systems. And you have 93 out of every 100 people in jail now is in a state prison, not in a federal prison, because they built more prisons. I also wrote into that bill I don't think that's necessarily the, the fault, but also like state prisons, I think are mostly out for uh, private prisons. So there's there's a lot about the crime bill that I don't necessarily understand, but it did mostly try it did mostly um, affect minority communities because they had already been the targets of most criminal um, prejudice by either the justice system or the enforcement agencies. A thing called drug courts. I don't believe anybody should be going to jail for drug use. They should be going into mandatory rehabilitation. We should be building rehab centers to have these people housed. We should wipe out, we should we should decriminalize marijuana. I like that one. Oh god, he's actually hitting some fucking yeah. Yeah. He's not really answering like what he did for the crime bill because I think he still believes at the time when that crime bill was made that he did the right thing because at the time too he was so adamant about being the law and order guy that he was so that that's his pride and joy that baby so he's not really going to apologize for it but he is going to try and address the certain disproportionate people that fell under that which is mostly nonviolent offenders wipe out the record so you can actually say in honesty, have you ever been arrested for mar for anything? You can say no, because we're going to pass a law saying there is no background that you have to reveal relative to the use of marijuana. And so there's totally for that. I like that. There's a lot of things. But in addition to that, we got to change the system. I, I don't know if he's going to buy it, but I like that. Join with a group of people in, in the House to provide for changing the system from from punishment to rehabilitation, along with a guy named Marlon Spector, who you may remember. I yeah, because punishment's not necessarily a deterrence against recidivism. Uh, rehabilitation has shown to be a much more successful route, especially when you're dealing with uh, um, when you look at uh, European nations. I always compare us to European nations because you know they have Western philosophy in them, but they tend to have a bit more of like a democratic socialist vibe to them. I wrote the Second Chance Act. But in the meantime, an awful lot of people were jailed for minor drug crimes after the exactly crime right. Was it. was it a mistake to support it? Yes, it was. But here's the, here's where the mistake came. There the mistake came in you terms of it. what the states did locally. What we did federally, we said it was. And you remember, George it was all about the same time for the same crime. What I had done as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I did took the ten circuit courts of appeals, took some really brilliant lawyers working for me in judiciary. We did a study, and we determined what happens if for the first, second, third offense for any crime in the, in the criminal justice system. In, in, in the, uh, uh, at the federal level. If you're a black man, it's the first time you committed robbery. What, how long would you go to jail on average? If you're a white man, how long? Black man would go to jail on average 13 years. White man, two years. I go down the list of every single crime. So we set up a sentencing commission. We didn't set the time. Every single solitary maximum was reduced in there. But what happened was it became the same time for the same crime. So it said you have to serve between one and three years. It ended up becoming men much lower. Black folks went to jail a lot less than they would have before, but it was, it was a mistake. Let me ask another follow-up on the crime, but it also funded 100,000 police yes. back in 1994. You've often said that more cops clearly mean less crime. Do you still believe that? Yes, if in fact they're involved in community policing, not jump squads. For example, when we had community policing from the mid-90s on till, till, uh, um, till, um. Let's see, more cops equals less crime. I'm writing this down. And he's talking about community policing, which is basically like the patrol officers, and it's still not true. Um, because in um, the highest crime-ridden places, you have the most cop, 
cops patrolling it and it still doesn't show any reduction in crime whatsoever the obvious causation correlation that fits between them even though causation is not correlation um, is poverty and so they tend to focus in cops on uh, low-income neighborhoods because um, that's where most of the crime is cops don't actually um, prevent crime or decrease crime they only really enforce the law against it so the only way to actually decrease the amount of cops that you have in a neighborhood is by having more opportunities for people to do things within the lines of legality which uh, I'm not sure how we're gonna necessarily fix that without bringing more opportunities and education into these neighborhoods, which means more government funding. Unfortunately, as Trump defunds the government, that means that's gonna bring less of those opportunities because corporations aren't gonna see those opportunities in those areas. They're not. They're gonna see low-income people who um, are worth a McDonald's and a KFC. Uh, Bush got elected. What happened? Violent crime actually went down precipitously. Remember the significant rise in violent crime that was occurring in the late 80s into the 90s. It went down and fewer African Americans were arrested because you had the requirement. The cops didn't like it. They didn't like the community policing because you had to have two people in a vehicle. They had to get out of their cars. They had to introduce themselves to who owned the local uh, liquor store, who owned the local grocery store, who was the woman on the corner. And they, what they would do, George, they'd actually go and give people their phone numbers. A cop would give the phone number. So if, if Nellie Smith was on the second floor I mean, they still do that, and I mean, most of the time you can get their... There's, there's not been any decrease on community policing, so I don't know why he's going at this angle. Um, if anything, that's always just been on the increase, and then on top of it, too, we have been uh, militarizing the police even more so, and then the other kind of police uh, form that he's talking about, which is like jump police, I think he named it, which is basically like SWAT and then DEA and all those others all of them every single form of police has been militarized upfunded um, and it's just been in all the wrong areas and I think the biggest problem that he should have been mentioning with community policing is that you should actually have people from that community policing the community or at least have a much more direct democracy with them like when we had sheriffs in small towns I think every police department should be shifted into a sheriff's county so that everybody every head of the police department is voted in and they are held accountable for their departments where drug deals took place and things happened uh, uh, below her also, we need to abolish police unions or at least reform them because they have too much power. She could be her apartment. She could call and say, it's Millie and there's something going on here. And they'd never reveal it was her because they know if she knew that, in fact, they report, they'd never report the crime. She'd never report. So it actually started to come down. What happened? They eliminated the funding for community policing. Community policing doesn't mean more people coming in and, and up armored Humvees and swarming like that. When they did, it turned out that by the time we got to the late. It does if you live in Kenosha. 90s of crime had come down so much and the mayors and, and everybody asked the question where do you want me to spend the money they say well only one percent thought violent crime was a problem it was as high as 22 percent right now we have a systemic problem how do you get the kind of policing prevent the kind of police you have to change the way in which they put one of the things i'm going to do george is what is set up and he didn't he didn't answer like he didn't let him finish the question that was a very Trump thing to do there. National study group made up of cops, social workers, as well as made up of the black community and the brown community to sit down in the White House and over the next 
year come up with significant reforms that need to take place within communities. You have to bring them together. One of the things I've observed is, you know, the neighborhood I grew up, I grew up in Claymont, you either became a cop, a firefighter, or a priest. That wasn't qualified much to do any one of them. But here's the deal, all kidding aside, most cops don't like bad cops. Correct. They don't like it. Correct. And so what happens is they get intimidated into not reporting. So one of the things we do is there has to be transparency available. We have to be able to do, go in at the... If most cops don't like bad cops, how are the good cops intimidated against reporting? Why would the good cops be reprimanded for outing the bad cops if there are more good cops than bad cops? So that's a curious distinction that I would like a little bit more information on. The federal level, be able to go in and check out whether or not there's systematic problems within police departments. If in fact a cop is, uh, needs to be tried, it's not the prosecutor in the community, in, in the district where they are. You got to go outside the community to get another prosecutor to come in and handle the That's not necessarily even the ideal either because like in the case of Michael Brown and which had Eric Holder, I believe, was Obama's DOJ or AG and we had William Barr for Breonna Taylor's. Michael Brown and Breonna Taylor, we both had federal investigators come into these cases and they still sided with the police. So it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, th I feel like we have to have, yet again, we would have to create like another organization with authority to investigate, but also can bring the information to the grand jury as the DA does, but it is a completely electorate um, organization outside of uh, the state apparatus, but completely beholden to voters. Crime, there's a lot of things we've learned and it takes time, but we can do this. You can ban chokeholds, you can, but, but beyond that, you have to teach people how to de-escalate circumstances, de-escalate. So instead of anybody coming at you and the first thing you do is shoot to kill, you shoot them in the leg. There's ways you have to do more background checks in terms of whether or not the person coming in passes a certain psychological test. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm sorry because it's really, I think really, really important, is you have to be in a position where you are able to identify identify the things that have to change and one of the things that has to change is so many cops get called into circumstances where somebody is mentally off like what happened not long ago with that guy with the knife that's why we have to provide within police departments psychologists and social workers to go out with the cops on those calls those some of those 911 calls to de-escalate the circumstance to deal with talking them down but we can't, cops are kind of like school teachers now. You know, a school teacher has to know everything from what, how, how, how to handle hunger in, in a household as well as how to teach how to read. Well, cops are, don't have that breath. And there's- Yeah, but even if teachers are taking that into their job description, are they getting the necessary resources to do so? A lot of things we can do. We shouldn't be defunding cops. We should be mandating the things that we should be doing within police departments and make sure there's total transparency. Gotta take another quick break. We'll be right back. I don't know the answer. I, I, I uh, for the most part, um, agree with the, the transparency part, and that's why I believe that alongside making every police department a sheriff's office, we should also be focusing on, um, what was I going to say, um, making sure that, like, cop records are more available. Like, I, I don't see why every cop shouldn't be listed with their information out because the thing is too is that the cops have a list of criminals that they're after they could just as much put that out to the public but they uh, everybody wants that level of secrecy because they're fighting against enemies and their domestic boundaries but here's it's it's a major issue because you have cops killing regular ass citizens that really aren't criminals Breonna Taylor is the perfect example
Michael Brown did not break any law that day. He had an altercation. He did not break any law, and he was killed before he even had due process. Um, so I agree with Joe Biden that we need far better transparency, but we also need to remove the police departments and bring in back all sheriffs, nothing but sheriffs, so that we have leaders that are held accountable. Police chiefs are not held accountable to voters. Why the fast I gotta fast forward with it on mute. He shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court and all other officers of the United States. See, and that's how old the 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 uh, art, uh, the the Constitution is. Is that it said he shall nominate? Uh, never in 1776 did they think that they were going to have a uh, woman president in the late 1700s. From the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, here again, George Stephanopoulos. It would have been crazy to bring like the forefathers back in a time machine and should like in uh, like 2012 when Obama was voted in for a second term just to see their reaction and like how they would feel about it because they were like supreme white supremacists. And the Supreme Court is our next topic. The questioner, Nathan Osborne of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Democrat. Hi, I'm George, Mr. Vice President. Hey, Nathan. Our country's first Supreme Court gave its first rulings just two blocks from here, from 1791 to 1800, and it's become more polarized since then. Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing for all of 2016, and Amy Coney Barrett's being pushed through at the last minute, even though millions have already voted. So what do you think about ideas from... It's amazing how much, like, Joe, and this is fucked up, but Joe Biden really looks like Jeff Dunham's puppet, the, the Walter. Like, he's like, he's got that cowl on his face right now, too. He just reminds me of... Walter, the Jeff Dunham puppet. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that, but this picture right here, like where I paused it, really looking like Walter. He's got his arms crossed, he's got the cowl. Um, people like Pete Buttigieg and others to put in place safeguards that will help ensure more long-term balance and stability. And what do you say to LGBTQ Americans and others who are very worried right now about erosions of their rights and our democracy as a whole? Well, and here's the thing too, is that like we're not really even discussing the Civil Rights Act because I feel like I listened to a lecture from um, what's her name Amy Comey Barrett that she said that back in Nixon time Nixon had four appointments in his during his administration or during his uh, time of power and after that period that some of them felt that his liberal justices which he had appointed were creating laws rather than reading the law as is so i think you know we could actually see um harder discrimination if the 1964 civil rights act is then um uh what uh, um fuck my brain's farting if it's challenged by say like a, a group like hobby lobby or even chick-fil-a who uh, tend to try and use their religions to pull back um, certain um, expansions of human rights in the United States because it goes against their religious beliefs. So that's, and that's, that extends into Roe v. Wade. That extends into the gay marriage ruling, and that extends into maybe even segregation. 
So, and women's rights. Well, let me start the last point, work my way back. I think there's great re reason to be concerned. I was on the road most of the time during these hearings, so I didn't hear many of them. I just got the recaps when I get, I, you know, be in, I'd get in late at night from, I've been going around the country, Florida, and anyway. And, uh, but um, my reading online, what the, uh, what the judge said was she didn't answer very many questions at all. And I don't even think she has laid out much of a judicial philosophy in terms of the basis upon which she thinks are there unenumerated rights in the Constitution and the list. So, number one. So I think there's re great reason to be concerned for the LGBT community, something I fought very hard for for a long time to make sure there's equality across the board. Number two, I think that also health care overall is very much in jeopardy as a consequence of the president's going to go directly after this election, directly to the Supreme Court within a month to try to get Obamacare wiped out after we've already, 10 million people have already lost their insurance from their employer and wants to take 20 million people out of the system as well, plus 100 million people with pre-existing conditions. So there's a lot at stake. I don't think it's appropriate. I think the Constitution implies. There's no provision in the Constitution. My problem is I've made a mistake of teaching constitutional law for 21 years and the separation of powers. The Constitution implies that the way the people have a right to determine who's going to be on the court is how they vote for their senators and their presidents. We seek the advice and consent of the Senate and the, the president's president. president for all four years, isn't he? No, he is. But once an election begins, by implication, it is inconsistent with the constitutional principles, in my view. You get disagreement among scholars on this. But I believe it's inconsistent when over well, millions of people already voted to put someone on the court. I think it should be should have been held until Yeah, but he's taking the Republicans' position in 2016. So both parties are really hypocritical on this on this specific argument about whether or not they should be confirmed or not. I think what's more important is that we actually focus in on what Amy Comey Barrett actually believes, so that at least the American people are familiar with who we are confirming. The next, this election is over, see what the makeup of the, the Senate is going to be. the thing is, too, is that in the hearing, she wasn't very specific on how she would rule. All we very, it's actually more... You get more information on Amy Comey Barrett if you go to like the history of what she like her previous lectures and her writings, but in the idea that she like really really admires uh, Anthony Scalia. So that's what's going to inform you more than her hearings. And I don't really think that the argument that we should wait till after the election really matters anymore because the Republicans broke it in 2016. Not that the Democrats are making the same argument. Be if the president won this wins this election, he should be able. How to about that it. question of expanding the court? Here's what you said exactly one year ago tonight at a Democratic debate. You said I would not get into court packing. I would not pack the court. That's not what you're saying now. Is the nomination of Judge Barrett reason enough to rethink? Boom! He's getting caught in like that Lindsey Graham situation. Lindsey Graham in 2016 said that if we had an, a president in an election year, that we would wait, and you can put me on record on that. Joe Biden's here on record with that, and he got called. And so, like this whole thing is just showing that both parties are hypocrites and are willing to do what they need to do to expand their ideology. Thank your position. The power. Of their what ideology. is the nomination? Of, what I wanted to do, George. You know, if I had answered the question directly, then all the focus would be on what's Biden going to do if he wins instead of on, is it appropriate what is going on now? And it should stay, this is the thing that the president loves to do. But you should also answer what you're going to do if you win. I am actually all for packing the courts. I don't really give a fuck how many justices we have. If we have to have hundreds of justices and that even means that we're gonna have much more slower results or even, you know, maybe even more like ineffective government, so be it. Because uh, there is no constitutional law on how many uh, how many justices we're supposed to have. My ideal Supreme Court wouldn't have a majority on an ideology. It would have a good mix and maybe even a swing vote 
it, always like you could have four liberals, four conservatives, even though none of them are supposed to be this. None of them are supposed to be ideological or political. They're supposed to be uh, law students. They're supposed to be justices who interpret the law. But, it, you know, nowadays we have a liberal, uh, what Amy Comey Barrett called a liberal expansive um, interpretations and conservative contextual or conservative textual um, interpretations. And I think right there you can have four of each and then drop one swing vote in the middle. One who you just never know which way they're going to vote. And I think that would actually bring more balance into the American system. The unfortunate thing, though, is that we have many actors and organizations and parties and people and what have you all trying to maintain control. Because if we have swing vote, if we have uncertainty, then we're going to have a, a more difficult time in this nation for some reason. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're just swinging into authoritarianism, so it doesn't matter. We always take our eye off the ball. What's at stake? One of the things Pete has suggested is, and there's a number of constitutional scholars have suggested as well, that there are at least four or five options that are available to determine whether or not you can change the way in which the court lifetime appointment takes place, consistent, arguably, with the Constitution. I have not been a fan of Pat Co uh, Court Packy because I think it just generates what will happen. Every Whoever wins, it just keeps moving in a way that is inconsistent with what is going to be manageable. So you're still not a fan? Well, I'm not a fan. I then say it depends on how this turns out not how he wins but how it's handled how it's handled but there's a number of things that are going to be coming up and there's going to be a lot of discussion about other alternatives Wait, as well what does that mean how it's handled how will that determine well, for, 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 for example there's actually real live debate on the floor if people are really going to be able to have a time to go through this you know i don't know anybody who's gone on the floor and just and you know, that's been a controversial justice in terms of making fundamentally altering the, the the makeup of the court that's gone through in a day kind of thing i mean it depends on how much they rush this. And you think about it, George. Here you got a lot of people not being able to pay their mortgage, not being able to put food on the table, not being able to keep their business open, not being able to do anything to deal with what's going on in terms of the economy as a consequence of COVID. And they have no time to deal with that, but they have time to rush this through. Well, right now, it looks like they're going to have to vote uh, around yeah. Halloween. So if they vote on it That's before the election, day. if they vote on it before the election, you <laughs> are open to expanding the court? I'm open to considering what happens from that point on. You know, you said so many times during the campaign, all through the course of your career, it's important to level with it the is, American George, people. It is, but George, if I say, no matter what answer I gave you, if I say it, that's the headline tomorrow. It won't be about what's going on now, the improper way they're proceeding. But don't voters have a right to know where you they stand? They do have a right to know where they stand, and they'll have a right to know where I stand before they vote. So you'll come out with a clear position before Election Day? Yes, depending on how they handle this. But look, what you should do is you got to make sure you vote. And vote for a senator who, in fact, thinks reflects your general view on constitutional interpretation. And vote for a president who thinks is more in line with you. And if you oppose a position that I, I would not have appointed her, but if you oppose my position, vote for Trump. Vote for a Republican who shares that view. But that's your opportunity to get involved in lifetime appointments that have, presidents come and go. Justices stay and stay and stay. We have a question from a Republican, Andrew Lewis. I would I guess a disaffected uh, Republican. You cast a writing vote for John Kasich in 2016. You're going to vote against President Trump this year. And John's writing in for me, by the way. I know that. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Vice President. I'm sorry. Mr. Vice President, my father, Drew Lewis, served as Secretary of Transportation under President Ronald Reagan in his first oh, term. Oh, yeah. I'll be darned. And some of his closest allies and friends were Democrats, including House Speaker Tip O'Neill and Senator Ted Kennedy. Sadly, today, we have highly partisan and dysfunctional governance, and I believe President Trump is primarily responsible for creating this toxic environment. 
As president, how will you avoid the temptation to exact revenge and instead take the high road and attempt to restore bipartisanship, civility, and honor to our democracy? It was written by a fellow who won the Pulitzer Prize for a book. I think the unfortunate thing is, though, is that we're not recognizing that it is the GOP who allowed Trump to do that to the politics. So to say Biden can bring GOP to the to to the table means that GOP uh, Joe Biden is going to have to consistently make um, uh, compromises to the GOP to get shit done. And the GOP is on their own boat. They're on their own boat. He wrote um, about the presidency. He said, you know, I doubt whether Biden is really Irish. He doesn't hold a grudge. Um, in politics, grudges don't work. They're not, they make no sense. I really mean it. I have never, and this, the second point I'd make is, everybody talks about, yeah, Joe, when you were a senator and a chairman of foreign relations or chairman of judiciary, you got a lot of things done. You're able to cross the aisle, but the days are changed. When you're vice president, you got a lot done, but it can't happen anymore. It can't. We got to change the nature of the way we deal with one another. And it starts off by the way your father was and Tip was and others. You don't question another man or woman's motive. You can question their judgment, but not their motive. We, we badly need an infrastructure bill. Well, what, what happens? I stand up and I say, you know, we need an infrastructure bill, Senator, but I tell you what, you're in the pocket of the cement industry. Well, let's see what we can do. You can't get anywhere. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. I learned that lesson a long time ago. I've never, even when it's obvious on its face what the motive is, stick to the subject and listen to the other guy. Listen, what I will be doing as if I'm elected president, the first thing, and not a joke, and you can ask if they tell you your dad's old friends on the Republican side. I'm going to pick up the phone and call them and say, let's get together. We've got to figure out how we're going to move forward here. Because there's so many things we really do agree on. And with Trump out of the way, the vindictiveness of a president going after Republicans who don't do exactly what he says gets, gets, gets taken away. There's going to be, I promise you, between four and eight Republican senators are willing to, going to be willing to move on things where there's bipartisan consensus. Last example I'll give you. You know, after, uh, we, uh, uh, the, uh, after Trump had been elected, named the next president, wasn't sworn in yet, I've been working on a thing called the cure, a bill relating to cancer cures. Okay? And it was called the Cancer Moonshot. And I worked with a number of Democrats and Republicans, and we had a bill that was about $9 billion that made significant increases in research and development on cancer alternatives, NIH, and particularly cancer, specific cancer initiatives. And we only had, at the time, I think it was a, a 111 or 114, whatever it was, votes in, 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 in the House. I don't hold the exact number. And we had fewer than 40 in the Senate. But after he was elected, I got those people together as vice president, and we sat down and we worked it out. And we ended up getting to pass 396 votes in the House and, and uh, 94 votes in the Senate. And at the end of the day, because it had to do with the Biden cancer moonshot I've been working on, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell stood up, and I was presiding officer, and moved to name the bill after my deceased son, Bo, who had just died. So there is, there is, there are ways to bring this together. But how about the question of political accountability? And is there some tension between that and bringing people together? You know, Robert Mueller laid out a lot of evidence of possible obstruction of justice by President Trump. What would a Biden Justice Department do with that evidence? What the Biden Justice Department will do is let the Department of Justice be the Department of Justice. Let them make the judgments of who should be prosecuted. They are not my lawyers. They're not my personal lawyers. So you're not going to rule it in or rule it out? I'm not going to rule it in or out. I'm going to hire really first-rate prosecutors and people who understand the law, like Democrat and Republican administrations have had, and let them make the judgments. But turning this into a vehicle for your, as if it's your own law firm, you don't own that Justice Department. You pick the best people you can, and you hope that what they're going to do is they're going to enforce the law as they see it. But he did it again. He, uh, he, uh, <laughs> he just, uh, um, yeah, he just, uh, said Trump's intent.
Can you remember any Republican president going out there, or former Democratic president? Go find that guy and prosecute him. Remember hear that? Or by the way, I'm being sued because a woman's accusing me of rape. Represent me. Represent me. Personally represent me in the, in the state of New York on my not allowing my tax returns. What's that all about? What is that about? Time to take another break. We'll be right back. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen for the same term. COVID-19 was hmm. Yeah, I mean, he just did that at the very end that he uh, implicated Trump's intent on certain certain legal issues. But um, that's just something that we're going to have to continue to deal with because Trump's intent is very obvious. It's selfishness and the desire of power. lot of ads. Panopolis. And welcome back to our town hall with former Vice President Joe Biden. We're going to look at the environment right now. We're going to get a question from Michelle Elison from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a businesswoman, a social worker. You're a Republican who's voted for Democrats, but you're not sure what you're going to do this time around. Correct? Correct. Just so you know, it is speed up audio, so if it seems weird to you, um, maybe slow it down on, on your end. But uh, yeah, this is sped up. Greetings, former Vice President Biden. Hello. Thank you, Mrs. Alice. Um, in a 2012 report of the University of Pittsburgh's Institute of Politics, fracking was discussed and its possible implications for the waterways from the Commonwealth to the Gulf. Fracking has made the population sick and, and killed wildlife in southwest Pennsylvania. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and small business development centers have already begun to transition people away from fossil fuels. What industries that are not harmful to human health and the environment are you planning for southwest Pennsylvania and the nation? Well, first of all, I uh, make it clear, I do not propose banning fracking. I think you have to make sure that fracking is in fact not admitting methane or polluting the well or dealing with what can be uh, small earthquakes and what, how they're drilling. So it has to be managed very, very well, number one. Regulate it. Number two, what we have to do is the future rests in renewable energy. The single fastest growing energy source in the world right now, because I'm going to say something that's going to sound self-serving, but I'm... An article just came out recently that solar energy is the most cheap, en uh, cheap source of energy now. So manage the recovery act and I was able to invest billions of dollars into bringing down the cost of the cost per BTU of of wind and solar. So now it's cheaper than coal it's cheaper than oil right now. And it has great, great promise. And it's also the fastest growing. Which means that you can throw a bunch of uh, investment with taxpayer money who uh, the majority of Americans supports the Green New Deal. You could then throw that money into that infrastructure and start taking that money away from big, big oil. And the unfortunate thing is, though, is that you then have to also roll out the initiatives to ensure that everybody can still get to work, because unfortunately, that's what's really keeping us away from that. You can have big oil maybe just still funded through the military industrial complex, because the, that honestly is actually, I think, one of the biggest contributors to CO2. So I don't really see them moving into like uh, hydroelectric uh, tanks and all of that shit, but um, so far we're still in a very broken system that isn't going to take advantage of the technology that we have today to make a better America and a healthier planet. Just because right now it would cost a lot of money and a lot of sacrifice. But what we're looking at right now is big corporations still making a lot of money while the bottom and the poor and uh, the communities lose the most, especially around the world in, uh, in these other um, already harsh environments getting more harsh. Employer in the energy industry. And so there are a number of things that I would do immediately. Number one, 
there are over well over 100,000 wells that are left uncapped in the region. Mm -hmm. We can hire 128,000 of these people who are working in the industry to cap these wells and get a good salary doing it now, number one. Number two, we should be moving toward finding the new technologies that are going to be able to deal with carbon capture. So ultimately, as a transition, we moved from, from to a net zero emission of carbon that we're still going to be able to use, if we find the right technology, some gases, some gas to be able to, if we can carbon capture. And I think we're going to be able to move in a direction where by the year 2035, we'll be able to have net zero emissions of carbon from the creation of energy, energy creation. That so we can move it by dealing with those. And every time we talk about global warming or the environment, uh, the president thinks it's of, a, of a, you know, a, it's a joke, and I think it's jobs. Because what we're going to have happen is you'll be able to see now, as I started to say before, I as president is going to invest that $600 billion we spend in government contracts only on those things that in fact also are not only made in America, but building an infrastructure that's clean and new. And what we have to do is focus on the transmission of energy across. See, and that's a very large market that could create a lot of jobs. Destroying the oil and the fracking and the natural gas is going to destroy jobs, but hopefully we can use retraining to get people into the green energy sector, and then also that might still require more people with, um, you know, better knowledge of what those technologies need now in order to create those jobs as well. Across the country from areas relating to solar and wind. The reason is that they have not, that has not been mastered yet. I met a lot of people in Silicon Valley, the battery technology is increasing significantly, so you're gonna be able to have, for example, solar on your home and a battery beside this, by this, by this, as I'm showing you here, in your basement, so when, it, when, when the sun doesn't shine for five days, you still have enough energy. So we're making significant progress. The other thing we're gonna do is provide an awful lot of work, it's estimated to put close to a million people to work by weatherizing four million buildings and two million homes because we'll save tons and tons of energy or like billions. the other thing is though is it's really hard to profit off of renewable energy because like solar panels are and wind is actually more efficient at generating energy and storing energy when we have better batteries so there's not like an easy way to make profits off of that the barrels of energy over time and at the same time provide significant employment and a good union wages prevailing wages let me stick on fracking for a second sure. uh, you said you don't you don't want to ban fracking as you know I mean, the real issue here is that, you know, capitalism is actually reaching the point where we're running out of that infinite uh, consumption and like infinite profits. And at some point, necessities are just going to have to be something that are provided without the profit motive, while we can increase the luxuries, commodities that make the profits. But that's still not enough money for the capital, you know. It's an important issue here in Pennsylvania. Not everyone buys your denial. A member of the Boilermakers Local 154, Sean Stephanie, was quoted in the New York Times today saying, you can't have it both ways. He says you can't meet your goal to end fossil fuels without ending fracking. What do you say to people like Sean who doubt your denial because they think you, you want to keep that promise? Tell the Boilermakers overwhelming. I like it. Chris Wallace is, or not, that's not Chris Wallace. Steph, George Stephanopoulos. <laughs> God, my brain is melting quicker than Joe Biden's. Yeah, Stephanopoulos is still holding uh, Biden to the fire as well. He's not, he's, he's pushing back. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Endorse me, okay? So the Boilermakers Union has endorsed me because I sat down with them in great detail with the leadership exactly what I would do, number one. Number two, what I would do is I would stop making, I would stop giving tax breaks and subsidizing oil. We don't need to subsidize oil any longer, number one. We should there stop that and save billions of dollars over time. What go. I would also do with regard to, there's no, the difference between me and the New Green Deal, they say automatically by 2030, we're going to be carbon free. Not possible. So are you for it or against it? You say you're not for it, but in your website it says you call it a crucial framework. My deal. My, my deal is a crucial framework, but not the new green deal. The new green deal calls for elimination of all all non-renewable energy by 2030. You can't get there. You're going to need to be able to transition, George, to be able to transition to get to the place where we invest in new technologies that allow us to do things. 
you can't get there because of the profit motive or you can't get there because like the technology is there. You have to be very specific because from what I hear, technology is there. Uh, solar energy is now the cheapest option. You have people actually like certain states giving subsidies and tax breaks for people who put solar energy onto their house, but we're still splitting it with the coal, with the coal and the fracking people. So what we have to realize is, is that we actually have to drop those industries entirely. And then unfortunately, maybe even have to go to a UBI system to provide for the new useless class of people who lost their jobs. Unfortunately, there's there is sacrifices to be made in a world full of ashes in order for an, a phoenix to rise out of it it's i i might get a lot of fucking flack for that but the thing is though is that old jobs die and new ones are born and it's actually for the betterment of the future if we continue which is fucking crazy because I think ExxonMobil just came out that they're going to increase their CO2 emissions by 17% uh, through 2035. Is nobody going to talk about this right now? Because they should be going in the opposite direction. And if they're admitting to that, then they should definitely uh, face uh, some serious consequences when we know that climate change is contributing to the deaths of people, uh, wildlife, and also just mis displacing people. So things that get us to a place where we get to net zero emission, including in agriculture. I've laid out a detailed plan. We should be taking the plan where we allow significant more land to be put in conservation, plant deep-rooted plants which absorb carbon from the air, and in fact pay farmers to do it. We can do things like pelletize all the chicken manure and all the horse manure and cow manure, and they can be and take out the, um, the, the methane and use it as fertilizer and make a lot of money doing it. For example... I think you can still... I think you can still... Um eliminate the uh um the carbon emissions or you you don't have to eliminate the methane for fertilizer um it's just that cows you know have methane whenever they shoot gas i think humans shoot out co2 and cows just shoot out methane and we just have way like more cows than we ever have human beings on the planet Right now, down in, in and people, when I say that, they wonder what I'm talking about. The biggest carbon sink in the world is the Amazon. More carbon absorbed from the air, diminishing global warming in the Amazon than all the carbon emitted on a yearly basis from the United States of America, from all vehicles and all means. So we have to use our imaginations. We have to move in the direction as well, providing for electric vehicles. Electric vehicles will save billions of gallons of oil, create estimated, not me, Wall Street, one million automobile jobs. But what's, but we're lagging, we're not investing. We're not doing any of the research. Gotta take another quick break, we'll be right back. I mean, he's kind of right because, you know, Trump's the anti, he's the antithetical to all of this. He's actually doing like absolutely nothing about it. So, you know, he's got him there. But at the same time, Joe Biden is the baby steps towards destruction or at least mitigated destruction. Oh, yeah, I got to pause it while we fast forward through these. The Trump one didn't have advertisements. Biden's unfortunately does. So I have to like mute and quietly move through. Um but yeah, he, uh, I wish he was more for the Green New Deal, but I guess it's just too much for uh, moderates to get behind. Um, because the, uh, the unfortunate thing is that uh, so far climate change is going to be much more aggressive than human, uh, than we are at, you know, combating the effects of it. <laughs> Welcome back to our town hall with former Vice President Joe Biden. The next question comes from Mark Hoffman, Center Valley, Pennsylvania, conservative who voted for Trump in 2016. Welcome to Pennsylvania, Mr. Vice President. Good to be back home. I'm from Pennsylvania. Yes, I know. Scranton, right? Yep. So peace is breaking out <laughs> all over the world. Our troops are coming home. Serbia is talking to Kosovo. And the Arab... 
Our troops aren't coming home. And Israelis are talking peace, which I believe is a modern day miracle. What's going on? <laughs> trade is not peace. Um, we trade with China, but like I wouldn't say that we're at peace with them. We're definitely in a cold war. Um, we trade with Russia, still in a cold war. Um, let's see. I don't know if we necessarily trade with like Somalia who were bombing or Yemen or there's definitely like certain states like I don't it's 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 fascinating how we can just conflate trade with peace going on does President Trump's foreign policy deserve some credit a little but not a whole lot we find ourselves in a position where we're more isolated in the world than we've ever been our allies are uh, our goat alone our you know America first has made America alone you have Iran closer to having enough nuclear material to build a, a bomb North Korea has more bombs and missiles available to it we find ourselves where our NATO allies are publicly saying they can't count on us we're in a situation as well where in the Far East we find ourselves in in the, in the, in the Western Pacific where we're isolated as well you have Japan and uh, and, and uh, South Korea at odds with another China is making moves so I uh, you know, I would say we find ourselves less secure than we've been. I do compliment the president on the deal with uh, 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 with Israel recently, um, but uh, you know. Uh if you take a look, we're not very well trusted around the world. When 17 major nations in the world were asked who they trust more, who's a better leader, and the president came in behind both the national survey, international survey, both behind Putin as well as um, uh, Xi. And look what Putin's doing. You know, you have Americans, bounties on American military's heads in Afghanistan. They have more people there now, by the way, than when I left, when we left in Afghanistan. And we find ourselves in a situation where uh, he's talked to Putin six times, hadn't said a word to him. And NATO is on the risk of beginning to crack because they don't doubt, they doubt our concern whether we're there. You see what's happening in everything from Belarus to to Poland, to uh, to uh, Hungary, and the rise of totalitarian regimes in the world, and as well as this president embraces all the thugs in the world. I mean, he's best friends with the leader of North Korea, sending love letters. He he doesn't take on Putin in any way, and uh, he uh, he is just uh, he's he's learned the art of the steel from the art of the deal by Xi in China. So I, I would respectfully suggest no, there is no plan, no coherent plan for foreign policy. You know, we've always ruled. And so that brings me in that he named off all of the issues that he has with Trump's foreign policy, but he did give him a little bit of credit, which he said Trump deserves a little bit of credit. But what is that little bit of credit that you should have given him before jumping into that? Because Israel becoming part of the UAE was probably always the plan of the United States government, because basically all that does is continue to legitimize them on the on the, on, the, on the world stage to um, basically destroy the idea of Palestine. Palestine has none of these rights now. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Joe Biden. I feel like Joe Biden even once said he was a Zionist. So, let me see. I want to I want to fact check that real quick. A Zionist being someone who believes in the construction of Israel over the ruins of Palestine. It's okay, because there's a lot of Zionists in our... Uh, let's see. I thought, yeah, he had openly said that he was a Zionist, but I don't want to get it from Arab American news, because that just sounds kind of... I can't find it. Um, Daily Motion says right here. Hold on, I have to use the restroom. Be right back. Ugh. That video is not gonna just play, is it? Because otherwise, it's gonna it's gonna play, and I'm not here. Israel is not the cause of Iraq. Pollard should be given leniency. Wait, how do you pause this? I'll be right back.
I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. All right, that was it. All right, that's all I needed. <laughs> that was Joe Biden saying that. All right. All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, we've been most effective as a world leader, in my humble opinion, not just by the exercise of our power, the most powerful nation in the world, but the power of our example. That's what's led the rest of the world to follow us on almost everything. He's pulled out of almost every international organization. He gets laughed at when he goes to the, uh, literally, not figuratively, when he goes to the United Nations. I mean, it's just not, it's not about the president per se, it's about the nation and the lack of respect that's shown to us. I want to get one more question in this segment. It comes from Mika Hack. She's from uh, State College, Pennsylvania. This is your first presidential election that you're voting. Yes. Hi, Mika, how are you? Um, I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm the proud mom of two girls, eight and 10. My youngest daughter is transgender. The Trump administration has attacked the rights of transgender people, banning them from military service, yep. um, weakening non-discrimination protections, and even yep. removing the word transgender from some government websites. How will you, as president, reverse this dangerous and discriminatory agenda and ensure that the lives and rights of LGBTQ people are protected under U.S. law? Well, flat out just change the law. Every, eliminate those executive orders, number one. You may recall, I'm the guy who said, I was raised by a man who, uh, I remember I was being dropped off. My, my, my dad was a high school educated, well-read man who uh, was a really decent guy. And I was being dropped off to get, get an application in the center of our city, Wilmington, Delaware, the corporate capital of the world at the time. And these two men, I'm getting out to get a, an application to be a lifeguard in the African-American community because it was a big swimming pool complex. And, uh, and these two men, well-dressed, leaned up and hugged one another and kissed one another. And I'm getting out of the car, it's late, and I turn to my dad. My dad looked at me and said, Joey, it's simple. They love each other. The idea that an eight-year-old child or a 10-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender. That's what I think I'd like to be. It may make my life a lot easier. There should be zero discrimination. And what's happening is too many transgender women of color are being murdered. Um... So, I mean, he is a bit more accepting, but it just like the way he answered it was very old man. Just by saying, like, I want to be transgendered just kind of still rings that like I don't fully understand um, what it's like to be transgendered or to feel trans or oh, Jesus uh, gender uh, dysphobia uh, dysphoria. But the thing is, though, is to say I want to be trans transgendered is that kind of wording that's going to feed right into the right-wing narrative that being transgendered is a um is a choice and it's it's a much more complicated situation than that whereas people realize that they are not the gender that their body um appears to be or so it just it it's not necessarily deciding what you want to be but more accepting of who you are and so I just his wording on that was a bit troubling for me. But for the most part, I give him credit for trying because nobody even asks Trump about this question because we know it's going to be either dumb or transphobic as shit, which I don't even know the difference. They're being murdered. I mean, I think it's up to now 17. Don't hold me to that number, but it's, 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 it's higher now. Yeah. And that's just this year. And so I promise you, there is no reason to suggest that there should be any right denied your daughter or daughters, whichever one or two, one. one, your daughter, that your other daughter has a right to be and do. None. Zero. And by the way, my son Bo passed away, was the attorney general of the state of Delaware. He was the guy who got the first transgender law passed in the state of Delaware and uh, because of a young man who became a woman uh, who uh, worked for him in the attorney general's office. Got one more segment coming up. Thank you. I'm proud of Yeah, still not necessarily he really answered all of that because he could have said that he had appointed the first uh, trans woman to uh, uh, Delaware Attorney General because, yeah, 
I, you know, he, he did his best. He did his best. And I'm more interested to hear actually from the trans community exactly how he handled that just because I, I myself am a cisgendered male. And, and I, I, I still like the, the perspective of mine is just that seemed slightly more compassionate than Trump ever would be. Not slightly. It is more compassionate than Trump ever would be, but it still is almost that old man answer of like if this was the 90s and they were talking about gay marriage or being gay. So um, it's fascinating. And I think Joe Biden was actually one of the first Democrats to come out and say that he was for gay marriage. So and it happened underneath his him and Obama that it became legal for uh, gay people to get married. So, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve on some things, but still very old man answer in a lot of respects. So now we're fast forwarding into the next segment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I at least appreciate that he um, answered the question in a more empathetic way, which he even did also with the, um, uh, you know, drug, drug offenders. Um, I, I like that he's more on the rehabilitation side because it, that I, I am on that as well as that we need to be re rehabilitating people who are suffering from drug abuse or drug addiction rather than constantly just arresting them and punishing them for it. Because the war on drugs wasn't really a war on drugs so much as a war on people. So... All right. Town Hall, former Vice President Joe Biden. The next question comes from Keenan Wilson, Narberth, Pennsylvania, Democrat. Good, uh, good evening. Um, you say that you committed to entering this race after the events of Charlottesville in 2017. I assume that that feeling, the prompt that you to run, will not go away once the results are determined. So, hypothetically, if you lose, how will you use your platform to urge President Donald Trump and those rallying behind him towards the ideals of a more perfect union? Well, to be very honest with you, um, I think that's very hard. He is not. Things have not led themselves to him uh, learning from what's happened, what's gone before. Uh, instead of uh, being chastened by uh, being one of the few presidents, the only president to be impeached and then have a member of his own party vote to expel him, it emboldened him. So, but what I will do, uh, I will hopefully I'll go back to being a professor uh, at the University of Pennsylvania and making the case that I've been made and at the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware, focusing on, on uh, the same issues relating to what constitutes uh, um, decency and honor in this country. Uh, it's just a thing that got me involved in public life to begin with. As a kid, I moved from Scranton where there were no African-Americans and moved down to Claymont, Delaware, and, and in Delaware, we have the eighth largest black population as a percent of the population. It was an epiphany for me seeing what was going on. And I got deeply involved. I'm no great shakes. I don't mean I'm, 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 I wasn't John Lewis. I don't mean to imply that. But it's the thing that's motivated. My dad used to have an expression, for real. He said, everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity. Everybody. And it was real. Everybody is. And so whether I'm a defeated candidate for president, back teaching, or I'm elected president, it is a major element of everything that I'm about because it reflects who we are as a nation and it's what makes us this is every single solitary generation the dial has moved closer and closer and more and more to inclusion and we are a country that is a country of slaves who came here 400 years ago indigenous people and everyone else is an immigrant and we're a diverse country and unless we are able to treat people equally we're, ne we're just ne never going to meet our potential but I think the American people want to see that happen I think they're ready to see it happen and I tell you one thing if I'm elected president you will not hear me race baiting you'll not hear me dividing you'll hear me trying to unify and unify with bring people together when I said I was running because I wanted to unify the country, people said, well, there were the old days. We better be able to do it again. Agreed. We better be able to do it again. Mr. Vice President, if you lose, what will that say to you about where America is today? Well, it could say that I'm a lousy candidate and I didn't do a good job. Um, but I think, uh, I hope that 
It doesn't say that we are as racially, ethnically, and religiously at odds with one another as it appears. Yeah, I don't know if like um, Trump winning necessarily says the white supremacists win. I don't. I don't necessarily believe that um he does have the white supremacists under him um but for the most part i don't think that's necessarily what it says i i think just for the most part that people are kind of tired of the ineffectual uh uh uh, politician and that's why trump keeps winning but um for the most part trump is a terrible president and that's why he should lose the president wants us to be usually you know the president's in my view with all due respect has been divide and conquer the way he does better if he splits us there's division um and i think people need hope i think look george i've never been more optimistic about the prospects of this country than i am today and i I really mean that i think the people are ready they understand what's at stake and it's not about democrat or republican if i get elected uh, you know i'm going to be i'm running as a proud democrat but i'm going to be an american president i'm going to take care of those who voted against me as well as those who voted for me for real that's what presidents do we got to heal this nation because we have the greatest opportunity in any country in the world to own the 21st century and we can't do I get his thing that he um, wants to unify the country, but unfortunately he didn't answer the question about racial justice. And um, the thing is that the Black Lives Matter movement um, is definitely searching for a bit of defunding the police. And that just really means that we have to focus, refocus our resources into the police away from militarizing them and creating a police state that could then be used by the next, the next despot. But, um, yeah, he, he, he is focusing on the message of unifying, but he isn't necessarily answering the question of how we are going to get racial justice in this country because it's something that we kind of we give little increments of and then kind of skirt away from it because, well, we've done our job for today. You know, wash your hands real quick. But, you know, it's always about incremental change with uh, liberals, but it's still not quite enough to actually pull the country far enough into an egalitarian state. We were divided. One more break, we'll be right back. So uh, it's a unifying message, but it doesn't necessarily um, let us know exactly how he's going to bring egalitarianism into this great nation in order for people to have equal opportunity beyond just getting a job. Uh, during that town hall meeting, he was asked several times whether he took a, a COVID test the day of your last debate. You're supposed to have another debate a week from tonight. Um, just two quick questions. Do you expect that debate to happen? Uh, Will you demand that President Trump take a test that day and that it be negative before you debate? Yeah, by the way, before I came up here, I took another test. I've been taking every day, the deep test, you know, the one they go on both. And because I wanted to be able to, if I had not passed that test, I didn't want to come here and not, you know, expose. I've taken that one, like, that goes up your nose, too, um, because I had come into contact with someone who had COVID. And boy, oh boy, is that one uncomfortable. That one is extremely uncomfortable. And you know what? I don't think I don't think Trump would ever do that unless he was forced to. Oppose anybody. And uh, I just think it's a uh, it's just decency to be able to determine whether or not you are uh, you're clear. And it's not. I'm less concerned about me than the people, the guys at the cameras, the people working in the you know the, the Secret Service guys you drive up with. All those people. And so yes, I uh, I, I believe he will do that. I, look, I'm going to abide by what the commission rules call for. I was prepared to debate him remotely, which was supposed to happen, and he said he wouldn't do that, um, you know, a virtual debate uh, or a town hall. He didn't want to do that. that. I didn't set those rules. The commission set the rules. So whatever rules they set, uh, and I'm confident that uh, the Cleveland Clinic is the one overseeing it, I think they're going to not let happen what happened last time. They're going to demand that it's safe. But you expect to be there? Oh, I expect to be there. Mr. Vice President, thank you for your time tonight. Thank all the questioners here. It was really terrific questions. I think you did a service to our democracy tonight. Thank you very much. I'm going to go back to my colleague, David, here in New York. All right, George, thank you. So there you have it. The ABC News tell. I think what's really fascinating here, though, is that like I really want to see um, 
them actually have the debate to where like microphones could be uh, muted and that way like we actually um, can get like clear and concise answers because uh, Trump's strategy isn't going to change. I mean, even during his town hall meeting, he was still pretty disruptive and annoying. Um, I'm playing the debate still here a little bit because I thought I'd Those voters socially distanced in the audience, Republicans, Democrats, and some undecideds. They asked him about the pandemic, whether he'd take a vaccine if ready before year's end. He said yes if the scientists are behind oh. it. He was asking... They're still asking him more questions, but the uh, the anchors are just talking over it. He would raise taxes on the wealthy and Americans. Should... What that meant, how this was handled. Yeah, he's still He will have a clear questions. answer on this by election. So the question tonight is, what is Joe Biden... He knows that they think these he's are still answering campaign questions. Field that he shines in these moments that he does best. Dude, that is so fascinating. He's still answering questions right now, and they're just talking over him. About Donald Trump, this was a night for him, Joe Biden, to connect with voters and talk about how he would be changing their futures. Yeah, as you rightly point out, Mary, a lot more about policy and plans moving forward than we heard from really either candidate in that first debate uh, after the shouting match sort of uh, erupted and really never ended as that debate played out in front of America. Dude, why, why is that happening right now? If he's still answering questions, just cut to that. If he ever really did pay uh, just $750 in federal income taxes, he was... They're, David, he they're talking about Trump while Biden is answering more voters' questions. What the fuck is going on, ABC? Was, and he was asked whether or not he owes that money to foreign entities. Seemingly said... He's still... All right. of the pan I'm going to fast forward some more. Because I thought this was longer than it is. Contrast to the image you're seeing in Philadelphia right now, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden with his mask back on, telling uh, George just a short time ago that he was tested uh, again today. They're still doing it. They're even acknowledging that he's talked. What the fuck, man? Like, why would you just go to this fucking pundit dickery? Stands on expanding the court. On the other side, Donald Trump. Rather than just have, having more of the vice president answering questions. Direct democracy being ignored for talking heads and their bullshit. All right, it went to commercial. I am so frustrated with how that ended. Are you fucking kidding me? He's literally answering more questions than he needed to. And you know what they do? They talk over him. And then they talk about the president. And they talk about his town hall. What the fuck, dude? Seriously. You could have gotten some more. Here, they, they even have more of him in there. Thanks, President. I want to get right to our, our roundtable, a virtual roundtable of sorts. Rahm Emanuel. Uh, ABC. They're just, oh, my God, dude. What fucking hackery is that shit? My Lord. All right. All right. So for the most part, like I said, and it still remains the same, um, Biden um, is like the most mediocre middle of the road candidate that we could have gotten. He um, did. Conf uh, he did, you know, answer for the most part that Trump does this and I would have done the opposite and that there's certain things that we could do and the government is able to do more than it actually does. Um, but you know, I don't think he's very in tune with actual public opinion and where we want to go in this country. I don't know necessarily how big progressives are in the Democratic Party, whether in the voter base or in the actual DNC and politicians. But, you know, the progressive movement itself is growing. So we could see it, especially after Trump continues to exacerbate, if he wins again and exacerbates more of our issues, we could see progressivism growing even harder in another candidate like Joe Biden or maybe even um, Kamala Harris trying to run after that. It's just not going to be enough because people are going to want to see much more radical change. And that's the thing about a Trump presidency is that he is bringing that more radical change. It's just in the facade of conservatism when it's, you know, 
I, when I analyze it, it's much more proto-fascism. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, for the most part, I think Joe Biden at least um, did a much better job of um, being a civil, decent politician. Um, I still don't agree with his policies, and I'm sure drone, drone strikes are still going to be an issue, uh, one that we didn't even talk about in this debate. Um, but for the most part, I like Joe Biden's civility much more than Trump's um, disruptive, childish behavior because he just does ring so much uh, like a despot um, tyrant to me and would much rather see an authoritarian police state with laissez-faire capitalism mixed in there. And Joe Biden still wants to mitigate a bit of a welfare program to kind of help the uh, growing poor community as wealth inequality continues to rise and it will continue to rise there's no way that that's ever going to change because for the past uh let's see 50 to 60 years that's just the trajectory we've been going in so i hope that was informative for you i will have these videos uploaded on youtube the channel being poor dumb rebel and then um, I'll get these uploaded onto the podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's Tox News, baby, where we uh, suck out the toxicity from your blood and spit it back in the eye of the man. Hmm. From inside the crumbling castle, I have been your host, As a Wave. That's me on Twitter, at As a Wave, A Z A W A V. Hit me up. I want to hear more from you guys. I don't know if you actually exist. Um, if you do, please give me a follow and, you know, hit me up in my mentions and all of that jazz. But if you're uh, uh, if you're not feeling it, then don't do it. You know, that's cool, too. But um, I want to thank you for joining me. I'm about to kick this crumbling castle into the abyss and say good night. And I love you, please, for the love of your Lord and our Savior. Um, I don't know what any of that means. Um, we, we, I, I want to have more conversations to understand who my listeners are, but fuck it. Um, for, 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 the, for the sake of love, love thyself and thy neighbor, and please uh, just, I fucking love you, and please stay healthy, stay radical, and expect change. Um, don't let it beat you down. I know these candidates are terrible if you live in America, but for the most part, we have to just continue to build the idea infrastructure of progressive change and making radical change and expecting the profit motive not to be the a1 steak sauce of america and start moving into the human motive so again thank you for joining me and we are exiting out again with king gizzard and the lizard wizard and the crumbling castle i gotta stop the streaming though